Hello. Hello. Thank you for listening to this first installment of discussions on psychoanalysis. My name is Edgar Danielsen. And I am Grégoire Pierre. Uh, we are going to be your hosts on this podcast. We are both licensed psychoanalysts practicing in Manhattan. I used to work in France as a clinical psychologist. I used to be a professor of chemistry at the University of Puerto Rico and then moved to New York City and trained as a psychoanalyst. With discussions on psychoanalysis, we would like to offer candid and we hope thought-provoking discussions on diverse aspects of psychoanalysis. We plan on recording one podcast every month. One podcast is going to be on a specific theme, like today it's going to be on the fee determination process. And in the following podcast, we will engage in a discussion with our audience based on comments people left either on our Facebook page or Twitter account. You can find them by searching for discussions on psychoanalysis either on Facebook or Twitter. Discussion on psychoanalysis aims at being just a discussion. Not a conference, not a class, just a discussion. And if you like the podcast, please give us five stars on iTunes. And subscribe to the podcast directly in your app. And you will receive automatically every new podcast every time we release them. Today our discussions will focus on the fee determination process. It will be mostly based on two short articles that Grégoire wrote on the subject. And both of these articles were published in Free Association, which is the newsletter produced by the candidates at the Training Institute where we are affiliated, the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis. Also known as NPAP. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Danielsen. Welcome to Discussions on, on psychoanalysis. Today we are going to talk about the fee determination process through three different frames. First, we are going to talk about it during the training, with a note at the end uh, regarding the transition between being in training and being licensed. Then, we're going to talk about the fee determination process when one is practicing in-network. And finally, we will talk about it when one is practicing out-of-network. Being able to determine the fee of a session is among the central aspects of our work. Fees are very charged for both analysts and patients. They have clearly strong practical implications and symbolic meanings. Yet, I found that very easily analysts tend to brush it off and not care about the fee determination process. The main idea we are going to develop today is that the fee determination process should combine two constraints. On the one hand, how to make so that the fee is not going to hurt one's ability to practice therapy. And on the other hand, to make sure that the fee is meaningful to each patient. Fees need to be a co-creation, like anything else in a therapy.
Let's start with the problems around fee determination during training. While being affiliated with a training institute certainly distorts the fee determination process. We should say, before we go any further, that Edgar and I both trained at NPAP. So things might be different elsewhere. Please let us know if it is in the comment section. Well, one of the things that it's a fact is that when we are training, for example, at NPAP, there's a referral arm which is called TRCC, the Theodore Wright Clinical Center. And through the TRCC, we get referrals. Now, it is the intake coordinator, the one who decides to whom the patient will be referred to and what is the fee that the therapist will charge uh, their patients. So all of this happens even before the therapist meets the patient. This means that we cannot take the patient's subjectivity, that is the patient's particularity, into account at the moment the fee is established. Yeah, so we start here with how hard it's going to be for the fee to be a co-creation. Someone else is doing it. And in addition to this, the fact that the intake coordinator is going to be the one who determines the fee is going to prevent any kind of use of a potential transference or cutting transference that is already happening in the first session. Reality is that the training institute imposes a predetermined sliding scale and it only takes your patient's situation into consideration, not the therapist's situation yeah. or the therapist's needs. Yeah, and in addition to that, you are almost only referred people with low financial resources. So that limits your exploration of the different ways patients can relate to their money. It doesn't mean you don't, you're not able to see differences in how people relate to their money, but it certainly does limit it. And I tend to believe that in such situation, love becomes more important than it should. It actually becomes somehow the real currency of the treatment. Uh, what do you mean by love in this case? We have to understand that the fees are unsustainable, at least in some patients' imagination. When you're talking about unsustainable, I guess you are not referring only to low fee. No, no, no. I mean, unsustainable is not just fees being low. It fees that in the patient's imagination would not allow you to maintain your practice. When it is perceived that you put more than what you get, love takes over the space the fees should take. Like fees are in some ways a buffer between patient and therapist. Fees allow a deal to be complete. You have a session, you provide the listening, you provide the counseling, you provide whatever you need to provide, and they pay you and it's over. They pay their debt. Fees contain what one owes to the other. Love does not. Love is never ending. It is never enough. So if you don't charge fees, you end up charging love. It means that you will leave some patients, not all, but some patients in an endless loop of needing to nourish you with more than money. Because in their imagination, they will think that whatever they give you is not enough. Of course, you can find such situations with people who pay more than sustainable fees, but certainly we need to think about how the frame will influence problematics that are already within patients. 
However, Gregoire, fees can be increased during the training within the sliding scale of the institute. So if we look from the therapist perspective, what does that mean? Well, it means that certainly the patients can pay more, but it is some kind of a virtual increase for the on the analyst part because when you are in training or affiliated with an institute, your stipend are going to stay the same no matter what you charge. I would say that it makes it very difficult to feel any kind of incentive in such a frame to increase the fees. Why would you go through trouble? Because it is a trouble to increase fees. Uh, when it makes no difference for you in the foreseeable future, you need to have a sense that you will gain something. You can't just increase because of the patient's needs. It has also it needs to make sense for you. And when you don't pay for your office or any of the amenities, you have little sense of how much it costs you to have one your own office. The very low stipends that students get when they are in training creates also some very negative effects. It creates pressure to increase frequency to increase income, even if it doesn't seem necessary to increase the session for a given patient. It also creates resentment against patients who don't pay enough, even if they are not the one who really pay you, still they are the one you see. And finally, the institute which determines the euro stipend won't necessarily increase them at the same pace as the inflation, which means that a $20 stipend in 2008 is not the same as a $20 stipend in 2015 or 18 or 20. I would like to add also that you can go through a psychoanalytic training without another source of income, either another job or someone helping you. So when you look at the two constraints I referred to earlier, when you are working in training, the fee is going to hurt your ability to practice and it won't necessarily be meaningful to your patients. Now, Let's look at the transition from being in training to being licensed. What would you say, Edouard? First thing I would say is that the fee determination process is going to be very different between the patients who come from your training and your new patients. I think that the patients who are referred to you during your training should not suffer very big fee increase. But I think that patients who are new to you, who didn't know you during your training, will be charged in a different way. Also, I heard some newly licensed psychoanalysts who decided to create something of an unreachable threshold for the patient they had during their training, so that de facto, they wouldn't be able to pay and would have to go back to the training institute. I believe that newly licensed analysts should not force their low-fee patients to leave by imposing them an unreachable threshold. I think it's highly unethical, and I heard some people doing that. And just a $100 fee, which in some ways is in Manhattan, not is not a very um, high fee, can be way too high for people we see who come to TRCC, for instance. But on the other hand, I don't think we should pretend that everything is still exactly the same when it is not. So I believe that low-fee patients who we already work with during our training should still have a fee increase. We go back to the question of love. 
After charging an unsustainable fee for a year or more, any increase will be interpreted by some patients as a dangerous change in the analyst's emotional connection to them. So the fee they paid was so low that you had to work with them because you loved them. So to change the fee means that you don't love them anymore. At that point, to ease the tension, it's easy for the therapist to believe that such low fee should be maintained untouched. After all, you were able to survive like this. Why can't you anymore? Well, you can't, because you're not in the same situation. All your expenses are going to be different. And I think this reasoning will lead to denial in the change of the therapist's situation. And to deny such a thing might also be a trigger eventually to deny the change in the patient's situation. Then at this point, we realize that we need to include in the fee determination new expenses. And those expenses are connected to being licensed, to being in private practice. Before we move to the price we pay for practicing, I would just add that what we mentioned about the fee determination process in the training institute or during the training is maybe something that happens when one is affiliated with an institute, whether you're licensed or not. If you don't determine the fees and someone is referring you patients and decide instead of you what they should pay, in some ways it's the same. Let's talk now about the price we pay for practicing. I think the main uh, difference once you get your license and you're not affiliated with an institute is that you have to pay for your office space. Mm -hmm. That is certainly the highest cost you can have. You have to pay for your furniture, insurance, and other policies so that you can practice. You can also, or you may have also to think about continued education, the ways you improve yourself, like through supervision or classes you may want to take, conferences you may want to attend. All of that is now part of the process of being in private practice. And classes and conference you will have to take because you will have to gather a certain amount of credit every three years. Yeah, the state of New York now requires that from psychoanalysts. There is something interesting about the office furniture. I'm, I'm thinking that when you are affiliated, when we are affiliated with an institute and we are seeing patients in the institute's offices, the furniture does not say anything about us. Indeed. So I guess there is also an underlying dynamic process when we get into our new offices and our patients who probably were with us before in the institute now see our taste in furniture, they look at the arrangements we have in, in the office, and that says something about us and may also show up in the transference. I would say that about the furniture in an institute, patients might still have a sense of your personality in the way you arrange the rooms. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was a Milo chair that I had to deal with um, a lot of students who would complain about other unknown students who completely rearranged the room and yes. didn't put it back. Yes. So there's something um, where they can express their personality, but it's true. Clearly not as much as when you have your own office space. Mm-hmm. About office space, I would like to go back to how whether or not you rent something or own, um, if you are very wealthy, an office space and if you rent it full-time or not. Mm-hmm. Because if you rent it full-time, you're expensive expenses are going to be much higher, but you will also offer 
a much more practicality to your patients. You might be available to see them more often than if you don't mm -hmm. uh, have a full-time office. Mm -hmm. In fact, that was my experience. Initially, when I got licensed, I rented only for two days a week. I was subletting from a colleague. I realized that that was not enough. Then I sublet from another colleague for one more day. And in the end, I realized that it was kind of a waste of money. And moving from between two offices was kind of a hassle. So in my case, it was the best option was to move into full-time rental. Yeah. And full disclosure, uh, one of the rental was with my office. That's true. Um, so I think it's a significant point to keep in mind when you're practicing and when you want to determine your fees. How much you pay to have your office available should be taken into consideration for how much you charge your patients. If you have a very restrained amount of time, I think you should take that into consideration and maybe charge less. And if you have a frame that allow you to be flexible with your patients' schedules, I think that should be taken into consideration too. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think the, the last thing regarding the price we pay is um, something that is that one has to pay anyway, but still it is something that we have to keep in mind, I believe, is that the work we do, like any other work, keeps us away from our friend and family. And even if we do a job where we care for people we work with, we should still not forget that Like in any kind of work, there is a sacrifice that is made in terms of um, self-satisfaction and about being available to um, our significant ones. Mm -hmm. And I would add that uh, for those of us who came from working with other companies or organizations where we had paid vacation, this changes the outlook now. Being in private practice means that we pay for our own vacation time. So if we're going to be away, that we, we need to keep that in mind so that we have the income, necessary income, just to go on vacation. I think that's a very good point. And actually, it makes me think that when I schedule my budget, I always schedule how much I should charge my patients regarding the fact that I will work 11 months a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing exactly the same. Well, let's move to the third part of our podcast about fees in network. Coming from a training program in which I had a small practice composed mainly of individuals who paid a low fee, I realized I needed to increase the number of individuals who would pay who would be paying a higher fee. And this is related to what you were talking, a practice that is sustainable. Yeah. But Just to be clear for people who are listening to us, when you say higher fee, you don't actually mean high fee. Just a reminder, we are working in New York. So just higher than $45 a session, which is pretty low for someone practicing New York City, is a higher fee. Correct. So one way of achieving a higher fee, not exactly the highest fee, but a higher fee, is by choosing to be in network with health insurance companies. That was my decision at the beginning of my journey as a private therapist. As an in-network provider, I get referrals through the insurance companies, and that helps me build my practice. 
do you see any difference in how much money different insurance insurance pay you or different for different kind of work? Well, I am in two different insurance panels only. Therefore, my experience is a little bit limited. But in my case, both insurance companies allow more or less the same amount for services rendered. Let's say we're talking about a 45-minute psychotherapy session. They pay more or less the same. They allow a maximum amount of money that they will pay. That amount of money is not your full fee, but it's decided by the insurance company. So let's suppose that my full fee is $125 for a 45-minute session. And let's say the insurance company allows $80. So that's the total I would receive for that 45-minute session. When the company notifies the patient, they tell the patient that they have saved $45 for seeking services from someone in a network that would be me. So they are telling the, the patient they save money by paying me less. So are you saying that insurance companies ask you for what would you have charged? They always ask how much I charge for the session. But they do not consider that into the, the final decision of how much they are going to pay me. So you could tell the insurance company that you charge two hundred dollar? Two hundred, two hundred fifty. And then they would still and then they would say to your patients, Well, you saved even more? Even more. Yes. And they would pay me, let's say if it's the allowed amount is eighty dollars, that's what they would pay me. How do you see that? Do you think the full fee that you declare should be closer to what they reimburse or you think you should actually maybe there's something for you to declare a much higher full fee? In my case, I decide to declare my full fee because I'm telling the truth of my full fee. Okay. It doesn't matter if the insurance company will honor that or not. It's just a sense of principle here. This is my full fee. And in the end, the insurance company is saying that they will not honor my, my full fee, mm-hmm. but a lower one. But if your patients were to leave that insurance or if you were to leave the panel, then you would your patients would know already that they would have to pay such a fee. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it really puts the insurance company in the middle of the patient ther- and therapist relationship. It feels like it creates a sense that in some way they are the good guys who get a deal from you and that maybe your fees were unreasonable. Well, um, that's one way of looking at it. And yes, it, it's... Uh, I mean, do you, uh, do you feel something like that in the dyna- it, dynamics? Sometimes, um, dynamics sometimes? I agree with you. The way it is described to the patient is that they are saving. The way it is described to the patient sounds like the company is saving them money. Yeah, that the it's company true. is on their side. It's correct. The company is on their side. And that definitely it will show up in the work we do in session. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the therapist gets referrals through the insurance company without putting money into marketing. So that's another side of the coin that we should not forget. No. It's true. I think you're perfectly right. And that's a very important point when uh, for people to decide whether or not they want to mm-hmm. go in network. But I, I'm talking to you. I'm realizing how much maybe for some people who are especially sensitive to question of jealousy or uh, whether or not something can be taken away from them, mm-hmm. the fact that the insurance is going to emphasize on how much they save and how much maybe. And so therefore, maybe in the fantasy 
not systematically, but maybe for some people will feel like actually if you were unchecked, you might be dangerous. You might be asking for too much. Yes. That, you see? Yes, I understand what you're saying. And, and so they, they might feel protected. And at the same time, that means that I'm a threat. Yeah. Yeah, that's something mm-hmm. I, I didn't think about before. Mm-hmm. Knowing, of course, from my point of view, that insurance companies are on neither side. They are here to make money. They don't really care about either the patients or the therapists. That's, mm-hmm. to me, it's very clear. <laughs> it's a business. Let's not forget that. So would it make sense to ask what is your general understanding of being in network? Yeah. Um, in my case, quite simple. I see being in network as a stepping stone between having patients who pay my full fee and patients who need a low fee. And what limitations do you see about being in-network? As I mentioned, one of the limitations is that the fee is determined by a third party. Another limitation, of course, is that I have to declare a diagnosis. Therefore, someone outside the diet patient therapist is aware of some of the information that is gathered in the therapeutic room. There is another thing that maybe we uh, that we forgot is do patients still have to pay you? Well, that depends on the insurance company and the type of health plan that the patient has. Uh, some patients pay a copayment and this is deducted from the amount the company allows for services. Other patients may have to reach a deductible, meaning they will pay me the amount allowed by the insurance plan until the deductible is covered. Some of the patients pay nothing at all because the insurance plan they have pays the totality of the allowed amount. How do you think it plays out in the relationship you develop with your patients? Because I I assume that people who have more resources will have better plans. And meaning that people who earn more, who could pay you more if you were out of network, actually pay you less. And people who have very, the word that comes to my mind is crappy plans, Mm -hmm. have to pay you more. While Mm -hmm. actually, if they were out of network, if you were to decide whatever you would pay, they would pay you less than those who pay actually less than them. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are raising one of the contradictions of the system. In the United States, those patients who have better financial resources, they can afford better health plans and therefore pay much less to me, which raises a series of issues in the therapeutic process. I have found that some patients feel entitled to services and they are prone to be less cautious about the cancellation policies for example i see so that's one that's one of the experiences i've had when you talk about the cancellation policy you feel like they respect less the frame correct it seems that they tend to forget quote unquote Mm. they tend to forget the cancellation policy because they are not paying much out of their pockets they're not uh, paying for the therapy. They are it's not paying. It's like all included. Yes. Yeah. So there's a sense of entitlement. There's a sense that the relationship with the therapist is a relationship with client-provider mm-hmm. instead of patient-therapist. Mm-hmm. I have seen that happening again and again. So you mentioned that patients pay once they meet their deductible. Do you have patients who actually have no deductible and yeah. never pay? 
Yes, that's, that has happened. Patients who have no deductible and very low copays, let's say $15, $10 copay. Okay, so there's always a copay. There is, in most cases, yes, but not all cases. There are cases in which a patient pays zero, okay. zero dollars. And my experience has been that in those cases, it's easy for the patient to forget cancellation policies. We mentioned how the fee determination process can lead to denial of change while in training. Would you say that the fee determination process in network can nourish feelings of guilt among certain therapists? You're saying guilt in the therapist? Yes, I mean, the fact that we might be willing to work for a fee that is unsustainable for us because we feel guilty about charging people. Oh, yes, indeed. That uh, we should love them. And, we, you know, we should love we them should and serve ourselves. them um, anyway for the lowest fee we can afford. Mm -hmm. And since the um, insurance company has already decided that for us, it seems to be an easy way for us to accept and deal with guilt. What I mean is that since the fee is determined by the company, it bypasses some of our personal processes of understanding our own guilt. Yeah, you don't have to be the one who ask for low fees. Mm -hmm. You've been forced. I've been forced but by the insurance company. But it can satisfy your feeling of guilt that yes. you charge for something that maybe you love to do, that you think mm -hmm. people really need, yes. etc. Being in network might be seen by some as compromise formation. I think now we're going to move to a fee determination process in an out-of-network frame. So up to this moment, we've been talking about being in network. Uh, let's go now and have a conversation about fees out of network. And let's start by asking, what is not so different from being in network? I practice solely out of network. And I can say that I find that out of network can fuel both guilt and grandiose narcissism. And what do you mean by guilt or grandiose narcissism? About guilt, the same as we talked before in some ways, but even more than when you are in network, because you can put fees that are actually much lower than the fees an insurance will allow you to obtain, which will become like an extra cost on the analyst part, because practicing will cost you too much. About grandiose narcissism, I think that's the specificity of out-of-network, is that some analysts will charge a lot so that their fee will reflect not what the patient needs, but what they think of themselves as analysts. And when I mean when I say that, I mean that they will certainly think of themselves in a kind of a grandiose way. So both guilt and grandiose narcissism are an issue, I think, in terms of fee determination process, because... It is some, some way an attack against the therapeutic process. It's an attack against the singularity of each therapy. I really believe that the frame should be consistent in its flexibility and as a co-creation process. And when the fee determination process is organized around guilt or grandiose narcissism, there is very little room for the patient's subjectivity. I'm not saying that some patients might not need high fee or some might not need low fee, but It is different when it comes from a sense that it might be what the patient needs than when it comes from a sense that what the therapist is worth. Patients are being overwhelmingly used to fulfill the analyst's needs. Why overwhelmingly? Analysts are always using patients to fulfill some of their desires or needs. 
Uh, we are the one advertising for our services. We are the one who want to help. I think that's something that is sometimes overlooked by analysts. I'm not denying that patients are being used by their analysts to fulfill some of their needs and desires. I think it becomes not okay when it's overwhelmingly so, in a sense that it becomes unbalanced. Part of our work is to be able to balance our need to help, among other conflicts, and our patient needs. So when our needs are too much taken into consideration, and it's in such a way that the patient's needs are forgotten, then it becomes a problem. Going back to what's not so different between in-network and out-of-network. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I would say that in some ways, as soon as you give statements to your patient who use an out-of-network plan, you have to give a diagnosis. And that diagnosis will be known by the insurance company and it isn't clear what they will do with it. As soon as a patient has an out-of-network plan, they will be reimbursed too. But they will be reimbursed at a certain percentage on the maximum allowed amount. And that greatly influences what people can afford. So what is the maximum allowed amount? It's not a complicated concept, but it's something that people actually are not often aware of. It is the idea that insurance companies are not going to reimburse whatever fees the analyst is going to charge. Insurance companies have different amount that they consider being acceptable for different services. And that works also on an out-of-network basis. So, for instance, I have some patients for whom the maximum allowed amount will be $100. And they will be reimbursed 60, 70, 80% of this maximum allowed amount. So, as soon as I charge them $100, and X. The X part will not be reimbursed at all. The, the maximum reimbursement will be $60, $70. So it is very different for someone to have an out-of-network plan that has a maximum allowed amount of $300, $400, or someone who has a maximum allowed amount of $100. And that, I think, is important to keep in mind because this is a way for the insurance companies to put people who are actually out of network in an in-network situation because they do control the maximum they will give you. Another common practice among psychotherapists is to offer a sliding scale and there are others who only offer a fixed fee. So let's talk a little bit about these two different options. I would like to remind the ground rules or the ground rules I have for myself. Fees should allow you to have a sustainable practice. Fees should never prevent a patient from experiencing life. And also, you have a social responsibility to see patients with little resources. So let's assume that we have a fixed fee. And if we take into account what you have called the ground rules, then perhaps that fixed fee is variable. So you could have two fixed fees, one for low-income patients and one for other patients. I guess that's a possibility, yeah. That would be an alternative to a sliding scale. But I would say that the advantage of to have two fixed fees in some ways is that it allows more people to have access to healthcare. But I would say that it is also dangerous in terms of the therapeutic process because it puts people in categories. It listens to something of the patient, but 
still you have a fee for the poor, to put it simply, and a fee for the wealthy. I think a a therapy should be more flexible than that and more subtle than that in the way we approach the fees patients can pay. So what I hear you saying is that you would lean towards having a full sliding scale. I think it helps us stay closer to the co-creation process that needs to happen in therapy. Okay, I agree on that. Now, finally, in terms of the out-of-network, what is your general view of being out-of-network? Well, so I've been practicing out-of-network for three years only. So this is where I speak from. But I guess so far it has allowed me to practice without too much interference from insurances. There are interferences that you have to keep in mind. I mean, some people, I assume, completely don't care whether or not patients have out of network plan. I do. I have to. My practice is too young for me not to care. So out of network plan will influence what patient can afford and what amount of work I will have to produce to sometime legitimate the therapy, the ongoing therapy to an insurance. Because they actually, on a regular basis, uh, come back to me and ask, oh, why is this person still in therapy? Can you justify the why is this person in therapy? And my experience is most of the time when they ask that, it means that no matter what you say, they will deny or partially deny reimbursing the patient in question. So that's something to keep in mind. Also, I believe that to be out of network is a risk. I felt like I could try because I speak French. So even if there are quite a big number of French therapists in the city, the ratio is still much better than when you are an English-speaking therapist. So it was easier for me to get a referral or to for people to find me. But you still you have to work on your network, you have to work on your advertising. I had to work on my website, make sure that it was well-referenced on Google. I like the fact that I'm able to accommodate each patient's needs, not just at the beginning of therapy, but throughout the therapy. Because sometimes their financial situation change for the better, but sometimes for the worse. And I feel like it creates a stronger connection when I'm able to discuss with them how the fees should evolve. It allows, I think, my patient to experience that I'm not just talking when I tell them that the fees have to make sense for both of us. They can experience sometimes that I am willing to decrease my fees because their financial situation is becoming harder for them. And then it makes sense for them when they have to increase again. And I think it allowed some of them to experience the fee determination process as something that is not just for me an excuse to increase the fees and that it's really part of therapy. You have mentioned a few times Low fee, full fee, and we have been talking about the sliding scale. Therefore, the sliding scale goes from one extreme, which is the low fee, to the other extreme, which is the full fee. Yeah. How do you create in your mind a full fee? What does that entail? So since it is not determined by the insurance, I have to determine it myself. And my full fee changed throughout my practice. Today, I understand the full fee as the highest fee I can charge without the fee disrupting the work. Meaning, too much can be seen both in terms of guilt, too much for this patient to handle, for instance, or in terms of curiosity, too much for the therapist to handle. And in terms of financial dependence, I need to organize the fees so that I'm not depending on one or two patients. That is bad for me, that is bad for them. So my full fee will be the fee that will allow me to sustain the whole practice 
and to not be disruptive and not force me to change my behavior with a patient because I will desperately need this patient to come back. You're talking about your needs as an analyst. But what about the patient's needs? You have mentioned that before. What need are you talking about? The financial needs. This is not the only need we take, need to take into consideration. Financial aspect, that's one thing. But we also need to hear each patient's singularity. Some patients will need to feel that you are charging them more than they can. You have to hear the need to not feel indebted with the analyst, the need to feel contained, the need to feel controlled. You take patients where they are and they might hold on very tightly to needs that are hurting their subjectivity. And you can't just pretend that in quote unquote being nice will always be experienced as something useful by all patients. You have to hear that the fee will need to evolve through the therapy because it's not just a bad final show determination. You have mentioned a few times a space of co-creation or a frame of co-creation, and you have explained, give us some ideas about what you mean. Can you, in a very in a couple of sentences, uh, summarize what is the space of co-creation in the therapeutic process? Well, I work with kids and it was extremely important to be able to be changed by everything the kids would bring into therapy. But I would say that every analyst should be able to be transformed by each patient's singularity, even be fooled by them, but that we should not be destroying the process. That is a way to understand therapy as a space of co-creation. It's not just you bringing something or them bringing something is someone listening to someone else and what you hear will change you and it will change them to be heard. I would like to go back to something we said about resentment in the analyst, especially if we are in network and how that creates a situation where we feel trapped by the in-network system. Now, Do you think there can be also some kind of resentment that arises when we have a sliding scale? Oh yeah, I think sliding scale can uh, create resentment. I think fixed fees are, or fixed fee are a good way not to feel any resentment. But yeah, sliding scale can create resentment for the analyst. Just actually, just like fixed fee can create resentment for patients. So yeah, sometimes you actually uh, go too low, and then it creates resentment because you feel are too low compared to the amount of work that you're providing, and then you feel like cheated. Of course, it is something that you will work through in supervision or in your own analysis or eventually within the treatment. But yeah, it does create resentment. One way I've found to actually work with resentment is to clearly state at the beginning of each therapy that the fees will be flexible up and down. So when I eventually realize that patients are have much more resources than they first stated, I can bring that up. But it also creates tension for patients and that creates resentment because they started with a certain fee, now you're asking them for another. Of course, those things should be worked on in the therapy and elsewhere, but it does create tension. We can't deny that. As analysts, we look forward to increased frequency for some of my, uh, our patients. An increase in frequency allows for to go deeper in the treatment, but it also has an impact on the patient's expenses. And on the, uh, on the side of the therapist, 
it means also that we are using more hours for the same patient. Now, how do we balance these two things? I think it's actually a, a real question in our practices, especially when you are in training, since you earn so little in your stipend and patients pay so little to come to see you. It's very e easy to um, see patients multiple times a week. And I think it's oftentimes very beneficial to a therapy. But once you are out of network uh, on a private pay uh, basis, it's a very different question because it can cost a lot more to your patients to come see you twice, three times, four times a week. So, of course, some of us, and I would say most of us, uh, decrease uh, our fees when people come more frequently. I don't have any good advice about it. I st I'm still struggling with it because I find that as interesting as it can be to see uh, patients more frequently, I also think that it makes you more dependent on them. I don't think if you want to have a balanced practice in general that you should have too many patients that you see three, four times uh, a week. Anyway, in, in, today it's it's unlikely to see to have s many patients who can afford such frequency even when you decrease your fees. And the transference will be very different, not just because you see them more often, but because you will need them more. And when and it might be much harder to see them go. On the other hand, our training focuses on having higher frequencies. So uh, in that sense, some of us feel more comfortable working at a higher frequency. It feels more aligned with our theoretical approach. Yeah, I agree completely with that. The depth of the work is incomparable when you see people more frequently. Mm -hmm. But I would like for us to just work for the beauty of the art. But I think the question mm -hmm. of the feed determination process should remind us that we are working in a society and that if we put ourselves in a situation where we become too dependent on one, two or three patients, it will be detrimental to other patients if those leave and you can't sustain your practice anymore. It's not just a short-term thinking. Yes. Like We need to think that we can be helpful to people and that we should stay helpful to people as long as possible. If you are very certain that the patients you are seeing three, two, three, four times a week are going to stay for as long as you need, fine. But we should keep in mind that it will necessarily influence the way we work with them. And that's why I said that we should be very careful not to be dependent on a patient. In other words, you're talking about the reality principle. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I think that's what I'm doing. Yes. <laughs> to go back to more pleasure principle. <laughs> Or not. A final note. It is harder to be out of network because people have much less incentive to come see you. I think being in network, as you mentioned, Edgar, is really a good idea when you don't have a specific niche, when you don't have a specific network, when you don't have the reputation that will allow you to just be called by people because they heard of you, because they trust you even if they don't know you. So as I said, I decided to be out of network because I thought I could because I already had some kind of a niche. But I think it is something to not consider right away if you don't have a niche. I think being in network puts the fee determination process on the side. At the moment, the analyst might not have enough room to contain such question with his or her patients. Now to conclude, Grégoire, let's talk a little bit about social responsibility. I believe that psychoanalysis can be 
and should be affordable to all people. In France, there are services where people with low income can have therapy, maybe not twice a week or three times a week, but they can certainly have psychoanalytic therapy for extremely low fee or no fee with not just people in training, but actually uh, trained uh, clinical psychologists. In the US, it doesn't work like this. And to make psychoanalysis into a private practice only profession makes it much higher for practitioner to make it affordable. But it's not impossible. The question of the fee, for instance, is interesting with children because they do not pay for their session. But when you work with children, you find ways for them to pay in some ways. And I believe that if you work with people for free, you could find a way for them to feel like they are paying something, that they're not indebted, that it's not just about love, that's not just about that you don't see them because you love who they are, you love their symptoms which means that they will, it would be much harder for them to change or to change some aspects of themselves. So, but I know, Edgar, that you are part of a network, right? Correct, yeah. And that's connected to social responsibility. I am part of a collective of therapists who have made a commitment to see patients at a low fee. And each therapist in the collective allows at least one hour per week to provide services for very low fees. So when we come together as a collective, we can offer our services to a wider community and balance our social commitment with the needs we have of having a practice that is sustainable. I think you have a moral duty, actually, to offer psychotherapy or psychoanalysis at the very low fee for some people. I mean, that's what I do. I have, I believe, five or six hours among the 25 hours I work a week. I mean, I see patients a week that are for very low fee patients. And I think it's just normal to do it. Once you reach a certain amount of money, you should be able, as an analyst, to restrain yourself and to not be greedy. As we get to the end of this first podcast, we would like to share with our audience a few resources, written material that we found interesting and helpful. Would you like to go ahead and share something with the audience? Yes, thank you, Edgar. Well, I will only offer one book called Money Talks in Therapy, Society and Life, edited by Brenda Berger and Stephanie Newman. It's published through uh, Rootledge. It's a very satisfying book composed of many relatively short articles all talking about different aspects of fees in therapy, money, not just fee determination. It covers a much broader area than what we tried to cover today. I have to say that I really enjoy Arwin Hirsch's article. As always, Arwin Hirsch provided a very genuine article about his practice and his thoughts about practices. And there is an article from which I would like to quote the very beginning. Chapter 7, Follow the Money, Training in Fees, Fantasy and Reality, written by Stephanie Newman. It starts as follows. I had practiced for more than 10 years as a doctoral level psychologist before graduating from an analytic institute. And though I could finally call myself a psychoanalyst, I was surprised to learn that I had another title, beginner. In the psychoanalytic community, you can work for a number of years and still be considered a cub, a newbie. 
What an unusual perspective and strange length through which to view one's accomplishments and professional statutes. I found this part very funny and close to my experience of being part of a training institute. Well, let me share with the audience a couple of papers, but let me quote Freud about money. Money matters are treated by civilized people in the same way as sexual matters, with the same inconsistency, prudishness, and hypocrisy. A little bit put for thought there. Now, there are two papers I would like to share with the audience. The first paper is by Kachina Myers, and the title of the paper is Show Me the Money, the Problem of the Therapist's Desire, Subjectivity, and Relationship to Fee. And in terms of the paper Kachina talks about is that the fee symbolizes and communicates the analyst's desire. And therefore, there will be a struggle over the exploration of money in the room because both the subjectivity of the patient and the subjectivity of the analyst will be competing. Now, let me quote her when she says something about asking for money. When we ask a patient for money, she writes, we're putting him or her in the position of having to recognize and acknowledge our separate needs and desires. So we are entering here into the subjective intersubjective world in which the therapist and the analysand are acknowledging that they are working together and at the same time they have separate needs and desires. And the second paper is by John Shields. The title of the paper is Hostage of the Fee, Meanings of Money, Counter-Transference and the Beginning Therapist. That touches on what you were saying, Gregoire, uh, we are beginners. So he says that, for example, just to quote him about beginners, he says that it's not unlike the conflict of the toddler who shows such great frustration resulting from yearnings for autonomy and simultaneous fear of abandonment by the caretaker. That's one of the comparisons he's doing for therapists who are beginning the practice. On the other hand, he asks a few very good questions he ponders them in the in the paper. Just to quote a few of them, how can we know when to analyze the fee issue and when not to? How do we decide whether or not the fee issue should be analyzed as any other and when it should be understood as a real-world consideration of the patient? So here we are talking about the real world and also the fantasy in the patient's mind and of course the, the, the therapist's mind. So the two papers, Kachina Myers, John Shields and the book that they were talked about. That's all for today. It concludes our podcast on the fee determination process. You listen to the first podcast of discussions on psychoanalysis presented to you by myself, Grégoire Pierre and Edgar Danielson. We would like to hear your comments and reactions to our discussion on the fee determination process. You can reach us on our Facebook page or Twitter account. The links are in the podcast description. If you cannot see it, just look for discussions on psychoanalysis in either Facebook or Twitter. And give us the five stars on iTunes if you want to support us. See you soon. See you soon. <laughs>